John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Please be seated. So we are beginning this series on the Gospel of John, and as you can tell from these first three verses, there is a lot to unpack. In fact, we won't be able to really uh, cover that much depth. I mean, we're going to be scratching the surface. Whole books and series of books have been written on this topic, the topic especially of the triune Godhead, the Trinity. And I know for those of us who have been a Christian for a while, there is a lot of assumptions and things that we say, this is what I believe. But perhaps you haven't really delved so much into it that you understand so deeply, how is it that Jesus is God? This is something that we need to really consider because the Gospel of John, and we're going to see this throughout, speaks much about Jesus as God. And the question that lies before us is, who is Jesus? Mormons believe that Jesus is the spirit being of the Elohim God, and he had a number of wives, and one of them happened to have a baby, and that baby is Jesus, who eventually will become a God. That's sort of Mormon's view of who Jesus is when it comes to Jesus as God. Jehovah's Witnesses, and for those of you who've encountered Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe Jesus is the Son of God, but still a God, not God. Christian critic Bart Ehrman, who was formerly at Wheaton College, he actually says this about Jesus. The Christians exalted him to the divine realm in their theology, but in my opinion, he was and always has been a human. Muslims believe that Jesus is a great prophet of Allah, uh, just like Muhammad, not as high as Muhammad, but a prophet nonetheless. He's a good teacher, but not more than that. So in the Gospel of John, we're going to explore this question, who is Jesus? What does it mean for Jesus to be God in the coming months? But in these first three verses, which is often called the prologue to the Gospel of John, we're going to answer this question by looking at, one, Jesus is the Word, second, Jesus is the Creator, and third, Jesus is God. Jesus is the Word, Jesus is Creator, and Jesus is God. Biblical scholar C.K. Barrett, he put it this way, if, three, if these three verses are not true, then the rest of the Gospel of John is blasphemous. It's, if you stop and think about that, everything that John is going to write afterwards is going to be meaningless to you, or that, that's at best, but at worst, it's going to be heresy. And so we need to look for ourselves. Do these words really match up with what we understand who, John, uh, who Jesus is. So first, let's look at Jesus as the Word. In verse 1, we're told, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
when you look at this verse, especially the first three words, if you know anything about the Bible, it should bring back a memory. And the memory is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, same words, but it said, God created the heavens and the earth. So that's Genesis 1, 1. And then now in the New Testament, in John's gospel, he begins with the same three words, in the beginning, but there was the word, similar but very different. And John's point is that when God created, it was Jesus who created. I mean, that's as blasphemous as you could get if you were a Jew. And you can understand why the Jews were so furious so often, as we will see throughout this gospel, at Jesus. They had a very difficult time with anything that he, that he said because he had that presupposition. So we have to take a step back even before creation because we have to think about this idea that, you know, this world and its creator and the universe's creator is God himself and he doesn't need us. But most of the time we tend to think, well, we're the center of our world. We don't like to be thought of as created beings or under the ruler and headship of one that we're to submit to a central designer. We like to be in the lead. John 1.1 and Genesis 1.1 reminds us that God, though, does not exist to support us. I hate to break it to you, but God doesn't exist because he wants to help you, or he wants to make you prosperous, or he wants to give you a comfortable life. He exists prior to you ever being a thought. Um, One thing when uh, my wife and I and our kids, when we talk about some memories of the past, say when my oldest daughter was three years old and my second was two and my first was a few months, my son Jack, he always says, oh, I guess I was dead then. (laughs) And we always have to explain, you were not dead. (laughs) You were thought of by the Lord. You were known by God even before you were even in the womb. I mean, if you can just step back and think about that, it's just unfathomable to think that way. But this is exactly what we have to think of is that God is not in existence so that he could give life to us. And we're not the center of his world. He is the center of his world. And you actually want him to be the center of his world because if you were the center of his world, you would be in big trouble. He would have a very difficult eternity. So one phrase that we read in the beginning, that phrase means that God never needed to be created. He always existed. He was the self-existent one. And he doesn't need us to be happy. He doesn't need us to prosper. And that is so important to understand not just who God is, but also who we are. To have this right is to really know what meaning and life is truly about. There is no mistaking it. Not only is God the self-existent one, but Jesus is God, which is what John is saying. And he is, John describes as the word. Now, what does John mean when he calls Jesus the word? In Greek, the logos. It means that 
Jesus is the perfect fulfillment and revelation of who God is. When you want to know who God is, you have Jesus. That to understand God is to have Jesus. And without Jesus, you cannot understand God. He is that transcendent. He is that far above us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 says this, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So how does God speak to us? Through Jesus. That's how he makes himself known to us. John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You cannot know God the Father unless you know God the Son. And that's why no other religion, Islam, Buddhism, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Mormonism, while they claim even to have some tenets of what sounds like Christianity, and while they might claim that they know God, they can never know God. It's impossible. What John is saying is that there's no way to know who God is without knowing who Jesus is. And that's why whenever you go and talk to people and you ask them, do you believe in God? Their answer quite often is yes, regardless of whether they what they know about the Bible or anything, but ask them the question, do you believe Jesus is God? And that's when you get a real response. But the fact of the matter is, is that this gospel is telling us that unless you believe Jesus is God, you can never know who God is. You won't know. I love how A.W. Pink, he's a theologian, he describes Jesus as the word. He says this, in Revelation 1.8, when Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, he intimates that he is God's alphabet, the one who spells out deity, the one who utters all God has to say. That is to say that John, when he calls Jesus the logos, the word, he's saying that you cannot describe God without talking about Jesus. It's almost as if, if you don't have letters in an alphabet, you cannot speak. Well, that's his point, is that there's no way to talk about God unless you're describing who Christ is. That's how interconnected God the Father and God the Son is. He is unknowable unless you know Christ. So this was so mind-boggling to John's readers because a lot of them are former Jews. And they're coming out of this idea that actually in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the consonants Yahweh, and you see it with a capitalization of the word Lord in the Old Testament, it's actually a translation of Yahweh, four consonants. Those four consonants are the only words that don't have vowel pointing. So there's no vowels. And it's intentional because you're never supposed to say the name of God. It was so holy that you just couldn't say it. That was intentional. And here, not only are they saying the name of God, but they're saying Jesus is God. So imagine you're a Jew. You're never even supposed to say the name of God. And suddenly... They're saying, well, Jesus is God. How would you, how would you feel about that? You, you'd be angry if you heard that. So it makes sense why the Pharisees responded a certain way. You're going to understand, if you keep this in mind, John's prologue, then the Gospel of John and all the confrontations and all of the challenges and all the entrapments and all those things are intended to say, you, you are a blasphemer. How, how dare you say this about God? 
You can see why Mormons and Muslims and secularists, they have such a hard time, not with Jesus, not with the Jesus they create Jesus to be. Because if you define Jesus by how you want Jesus to be, then you can say, oh, he's a good teacher. He's good morally speaking. But that's not how John describes Jesus. You see, John describes Jesus as God, and everyone who heard Jesus speak was really offended by him. And so it makes no sense that in our day, people can like Jesus and not be a Christian. Because you hear him, you think, as C.S. Lewis says, he's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. I mean, Jesus doesn't allow you to make him out to be a good teacher. It just doesn't make sense. He has to be a crazy man, or he has to be a deceptive liar, or he has to be God himself. This is John's point of Jesus as word. He's saying that Jesus has to be the rationale for your life. The logos is the rationale, the reason, the raison d'etre. You know, he is the, he's the reason why you live. He's the essence of who you are. And so I think for many of us, we tend to think of Jesus sometimes and I would say, if you think of Jesus this way and you live this way, you have to really question whether you actually know Christ as Lord and King. As Jesus is one part of your life. So you have Jesus here, and then you have sports here, and you have career here, and you have marriage here, and you have your children here, and you have your entertainments here. And he's just one of many subjects, like school, where you have math, science, reading, whatever, literature, and he's just one subject of your school. That's not a believer of Christ. That is someone who is religious. But someone who knows Christ as the Lagos and believes and trusts in him places Jesus at the center and everything around you is filtered through Christ. You see the world and all of your activities and all that you do and all your priorities and all your hopes and all your dreams are always filtered through the God who is Jesus Christ. That's just how the Bible views how the Christian life has to be. You know, Christian marriage is not two Christians getting together and getting married. A Christian marriage is actually one person who has submitted themselves to Christ and makes Jesus, Lord of their life, and the other person who has submitted themselves not to one another, but to Christ and made him Lord of their life. And together, as they're coming together as one, they're submitting themselves to Christ first as Lord of their life. And then there's mutual submission and all the roles and all the different aspects of husband and wife. But it is not going on the coffee and uh, coffee meets bagel app and checking I want a Christian. And so you go out on a date and say, do you go to church? Yes, I go to church. You go to church? Yes, I go to church. You're a Christian. I'm a Christian too. See, I think there is this thinking that to tick a box and to simply say, I'm a Christian because I, I checked that box, therefore we're believers, but we're not. That's religious people. Religious people see Jesus as just one part of their life. You can't read Genesis, I mean, sorry, uh, John 1, 1, and actually see Jesus as only a part of your life. He just doesn't allow you to do that. And so he's not a goal to know. He's not like playing 
the guitar. I want to learn how to play the guitar. I'm going to take some lessons. He's not a, like a person going to get an MBA. He's not an end goal like that. He's someone you make everything about you. That's what it means for Jesus to be the word, to believe Jesus as word. Because here's the thing about the word is that if there's a spoken word, then he's challenging you, do you believe it or not? Do you trust him? Let's look at John chapter 11, verses 25 through 26. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So if you say, uh, I think John 1, 1 and John 1, 2 and John 1, 3 and the rest of John is true, then what you're saying is, I believe his word. And if you believe it, you decide to live by it. It actually makes a difference to you. And so if, a, if you go to the doctor because you have, a, you have a real sharp pain in your chest and the doctor says, go and get an EKG and get some tests and blood work done. You go and do all that and they come back with this result. They show you the x-ray or an MRI and they show, wow, something is seriously wrong with your heart. And take a look. You have this evidence. Your blood work is showing some spiked levels of all these different indicators that's, caught, that's showing you that you have a heart problem and you have to change your diet. You have to exercise. You have to do something about it. And you say, no, I don't believe that. I don't, I'm going to go back and do whatever I want to do because I don't think that's true. And he says, but look, I got all this evidence for you. And you say, no, I don't believe that. I'm going to do whatever I want. Or you say, I do believe it. And you go back and do whatever you want. It really reveals what you truly believe. Because if you really believe it, you will change. You will act upon it. And that's the point of what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verses 23 and 24. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So Jesus, I think, makes it pretty clear there. If you love him and you say that you love him, you will obey him. And the way you obey him is you read his word, you see that he is the revelation of God himself, so therefore you trust him and you act accordingly to his word. And when you don't live according to his word, it's actually showing you don't love him. So if you say, I do believe these tests to be true, and then you go about and live completely contrary to that, that means you don't believe those tests are true, no matter what you say. The person who says it and doesn't do it is the religious person. The person who says, yes, I believe, I see, and then you go about and do it, well, that's the person who has relationship and believes and trusts. Think of the difference between a child and an adult. A child can only see what's in front of them and whatever they're offered and what makes him or her feel good, he will act upon it. I was having this conversation right after the first worship and they brought their little child over to me and said, well, I don't know if they would go with a piece of candy. I'll explain it. Um, if a stranger offers a child a delicious piece of candy, 
that child is going to go for it. So that, that parent said, well, my child wouldn't go for a piece of candy. <laughs> and I said, well, forget about the candy. Whatever your child thinks is the best. So I started talking to the child. What, what do you love the most? Would you go for that? If there are no parents around, if they're an orphan, and they're offered the most delectable delight that they can have, they will go for it. And because that child can't think beyond the moment, whatever's immediately pleasurable to them, they will pursue. And so perhaps he'll be lured into a car by a stranger. And then, of course, his life will be in utter misery. But a parent will tell a child, no, you must not eat that candy. Take that from a stranger. So who is the bad person to that child? Is it the person, is it the child, uh, I'm sorry, the ad adult who comes and says, here's a piece of candy? Or is it the parent who says, no, you can't have it? Of course, it's the parent who is withholding the pleasure. And our instinct is to be, be very much like that, to think, God, if you are good to me, if you're loving to me, you won't withhold pleasures from me. And the pleasure could be the success of my child for their future. They win first prize in the competition of whatever that competition is. And God, if you really love me, you'll actually allow my child to win first place or for me to meet the person of my dreams in this one moment or to get this job that I've wanted so much. Whatever you think, in the, and children think this way, is whatever feels good in the moment, that's what I want the most. If all your friends at school have a phone and have an Instagram account and are scrolling through and saying, if you don't have this, then you're missing out. And then suddenly our hearts are longing for it. Well, I want that too. That pleasure in that moment, we think it's everything to us, but sometimes it takes maturity to step back and say, you know what, maybe I'm willing to wait. Maybe I don't need this. When Jesus is the word, it means I believe him. It means that he is the parent, you might say, who knows far more then a little child, a three-year-old that says, I want that piece of candy and I'll go with any parent, any adult who gives that to me. And yes, that candy might taste good in a moment, but as you all know, those candies do not last too long. They eventually melt away and then you have nothing. And so when Jesus is saying, I am the word, obey me, trust me, it's not to make your life miserable, but it's to actually cause you to have the utmost joy that you could possibly ever have, not just now, but eternally speaking. But you have to trust him in that process. And in the moment, it means sometimes deprivation of pleasure or of comfort. Sometimes it's not getting what you want the most right now is exactly what you need for your utmost pleasure, your utmost joy. Do we trust Jesus as the word? We're going to see through the gospel of John that that's what he's going to call us to over and over again. Obey my commands. They're light. I want, I'm going to make my home with you. When you obey me, I, I'm going to dwell in you and you will have something that this world cannot give to you. 
but you have to believe me. You have to trust me. Trust I am God's, I am the perfect word, revelation of God. This is Jesus as the word. Second is Jesus as the creator. Verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews 1.10 says something similar. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. If you stop and think about this idea for a moment, that Jesus is actually the creator. I mean, again, that makes us go back, at least it makes me go back and think about the Jews and think, of course they would be so furious at Jesus and at the gospel and at Christianity because to say that Jesus is creator is absolute blasphemy. There's no way Jesus could be creator. When we think of Jesus as creator, it means that he is self-existent and only God can create from nothing. There's two assumptions in our world. One is that, and it's the primary assumption, presupposition in our world is that there was no God, there's no central designer, there's only chance, spontaneous generation. We learn that in biology, in pretty much every high school bio biology class, college, it's the same message. There's no God, it just happens by chance. And so we lose this sense of wonderment and we absolutely fail to see that actually John doesn't allow us and Jesus doesn't allow us to simply think there's nothing but chance that Jesus is the creator of all. We get so mesmerized by small creations, you know, the, just waiting for the iPhone 14 to come out, the next iteration of the iPhone. When that comes out, everything will be great in this world. We've been waiting for the next generation of electric batteries so our electric vehicles can go now 500 miles instead. We, we want a new energy source that's going to keep us from not having to turn down our power from 4 to 9 p.m. and then do our laundry after 9 um, so that we don't have rolling blackouts. I mean, is that what we're left with when it comes to creation? We know if Jesus as creator, as God has designed the human body, he knows the proteins and enzymes and atoms and what your body exists like on the subatomic level. He knows every atom that is existent in your body. He knows every drop of blood that you spill from a cut. That blood that fell off and hit the floor, he knows about that. He knows that drop. He is there looking at the rays of the sun and can sense the light particles. Not just sense, he knows it by its very definition, by every particle that is hitting that ground. He knows it. He knows every particle of dust that is floating in space. He knows where it's going, where it will end up being, all concurrently at the same time. I watched a documentary on Netflix on octopuses. This octopus might teach, I don't know if any of you watched that, but he knows the depths of the water where an octopus is running away from a shark and it changes colors and textures and the ink flows out of it and, he, and it goes into a cave and he knows exactly what's happening there. He designed it, he created it. When you 
Think about all that and so much more. And John is saying, Jesus did that. This is who Jesus is saying you trust. John is saying, follow him. Trust him with your life. Don't think that he is just some transcendent God who doesn't care about anything. He is there. The world despises this Jesus. It refuses to believe that he is there. Atheist Bertrand Russell, he says this, man is the product of an accidental collocation of atoms. All the noonday brightness of human genius is destined to extinction in the vast depth, depth, uh, death of the solar system. Only on the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation be safely built. I mean, look at that last sentence. It's actually really ridiculous, actually. That it, it sounds like it's talking about the Bible on the scaffolding of the truths that everything is accidental. Only on that truth can you be uh, freed from despair and your soul safely built. What a what a scary thought that based on something completely accidental that you can be happy. No. A world that believes that everything is accidental. You are, you're no better than an ant or, you know, a stone or a tree. That that in some way makes you feel safe or good about yourself. We see instead a rejection of God so often leads to a dark fatalism. And that fatalism leads to depression, cynicism, a lack of morality, amorality, really, a, a dulling of our loneliness. Society gets completely disrupted. Some of you have play, uh, played the game Jenga. And Jenga is a classic game, bunch of logs. You pull out one piece at a time, and you have a group of people doing that. And if you notice, as you pull out the logs, right before it's about to tip over, if you look at it, it tends to be that the bottom, very shaky. Maybe there's just a few logs left. The top tends to be still have a number of logs left. But where it gets really weak is the center. Because as you're pulling one log out at a time, one block out at a time, that center is opening up so much that it's nothing but a shell. And eventually, the structural integrity is lost and it tips over. And I, I, I'm so sad to say that our society and even individually and corporately, we're doing exactly that. We pull out marriage. We pull out family. We pull out gender. And then, and then just personally, God's word, empty. Prayer, empty. You know, a, a desire to follow and understand the cost of following Christ, empty. And as, we, as these pieces are being pulled out slowly but surely, what happens but individually and corporately in society? It's lost forever. It's crashing to the ground. If Jesus is truly creator, we know that we're secure. Even because even if the, that which seems like it's going to collapse, the base is strong. It will not collapse. But when you don't believe in a God who is Lord of all, and there's no base, it will be truly lost forever.
everything will collapse. With Jesus as creator, we know that everything in our world, no matter how shaky, how unstable, is still under his power. And therefore, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to worry. We can battle fear and we can trust that God is sovereign and in control. And that's good news. Lastly, he is God. Jesus is God. Verse one again, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. A while ago, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses came knocking to my door and uh, they had a number of questions and What's interesting is that they specifically are prepped for this verse. Because once you start talking to them and you say, well, I believe Jesus is God. And they say, have you ever read John 1.1? I say, yes. So you point them to John 1.1 and they have an answer for that. In the Greek grammar, uh, there's the word was God does not have the definite article. And it's the word the, the in English. And Therefore, they say, well, there's no definite article. It's actually referring to a God. So if you ever read a Jehovah's Witness Bible called the New World Translation, they actually say a God, and they say, well, here's why. In the Greek, it says this. And so there's an answer to that, and we spend a lot of time talking about it. And then what happens is you start going back to, well, this Greek scholar says that, and it just goes back in circles again. The point of it is to say that this is a really critical verse it's not the only verse, and there's so much more. Just start with in the beginning. Again, that's where you can start. Forget about this last part, but if you stick here, you can see John is making the point, not that Jesus is a God, he is God. And that is vilified so much. Again, people do not mind Jesus being a good guy, a really great teacher, moral, He's sort of like Confucius or Buddha. He has good things to say. He's, a, he's really nice. But once you say Jesus is God, that's when you lose everything for that person. Does Jesus then have to be God? I agree with Martin Luther when he says, yes, he has to be God. Look at what he says. He says, this text is a strong and valid attestation of the divinity of Christ. Everything Everything depends on this doctrine. It serves to maintain and support all other doctrines of the Christian faith. Therefore, the devil assailed it very early in the history of the Christendom, and he continues to do so in our day. So in the early church, around 200s, 300s, there was a, a person by the name of Arius, and he tried to make the same claim. Jesus is not God. He is a person, a really good person. He's like God, but he's not God. And that was dealt with early on. And throughout church history, this attack has been going nonstop. So is Luther right? He's saying everything, everything we believe rests on the idea that Jesus is God. Well, here's one way that we see this to be true. The very gospel that we preach, that we believe that says, this is how I'm saved. This is how I know I'm a believer. This is why I go to church on Sunday. This is why I'm with, tell other people about Jesus and go on missions and care for the poor and think about foster children is that because Jesus is God, he is perfectly good and righteous and just. 
He's holy. He's sinless. If he wasn't God, that means that he's not perfect. Maybe almost. But if you're not perfect, but almost righteous, not perfectly righteous, almost righteous, that means that you actually have the potential to be unrighteous or a sinner or evil. That's the thing about God is that once you take away one part of God's perfection, he can possibly be no longer God. Because if he can possibly change, that means he can possibly change to become an evil God, not a good God. Everything rests on the idea that Jesus is God. And if Jesus is God, he can be perfectly righteous. If he's perfectly righteous, and he then he can be a perfect sacrifice, a substitute for us. He can die for our sins. And when he dies for our sins and he gives us his righteousness, our right, his righteousness perfect is credited, then when God looks at us, he doesn't say, you know, I like most about you, but that little 1%, I really don't like that. God can't do that. He's God. And for you to be in his presence, you have to be perfectly righteous. And for us to have the blood of Christ covering us, he has to be God. I know this is a huge logic sort of swing, but I really, really, really want to emphasize this to you because that's sort of what John's point is to say that you have to have Jesus as God. If he is not God, he could not have taken your sins on that cross you would not be free from your sins. And as the Apostle Paul says, you and I would be the most pitied of all people because we come here and worship, we sacrifice, we do all these things for a God who is not God, for one who can't take away sin, who when he died on the cross, how could he ever rise from the grave? Only God can do that. No human could ever do that. No angel can do that. No demon can do that. Not Satan can do that. Only God can break the power of sin and death. If we believe that to be true, then we know the gospel can be true. If Jesus is not God, there is no gospel. And without the gospel, there is no good news. And we are left in our sin and to be the most pitied of all. So goes the logic of all of the gospel of John, all the New Testament, all of scripture. Everything rests on the idea that Jesus is God. And so John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31 says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. When you believe in Jesus, when you believe that he is God, when you believe that he is the Logos, when you believe that he is the Son, you may have life in him forever. Without that, it's a cascading effect of everything coming crashing down and there is nothing at all. In that sense, we are far worse than any person who does not know Christ. To be a religious person as a Christian is miserable. It is. You do not want to be in that state because that state holds so many things with such faultiness that it never gives you joy. And it's no wonder that that person looks like a Christian, but is actually miserable. 
because they'll never be able to live up to their own standards or to the standards that they have committed to or what other people hold them to. No, it is the Christian who is the most joyous. They know Jesus is God. They know that Jesus has borne the brunt and the, the curse of your sin on a tree. They know that he has atoned for your sin. They know that you are no longer bound by that sin. You're freed from the guilt of that sin. There's no condemnation for those who believe in Christ. We've been set free from the law of sin and death. And therefore, we're able to go and actually be freed from the oppression of our world. Even when things look like they're collapsing, we trust him. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why we come to this cross. Let's pray together. Father, we look to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and we see what it says about Jesus, God the Son. Oh Lord, thank you for this wondrous truth. Help us, oh Lord, to submit willfully to it, never to see Jesus, you as God, as an oppression, but rather as a freedom. Help us to understand, O Lord, that unless you are God and you are Lord of our life, you are the one we submit to, the one we trust. And we have this visible representation of why you are worthy of our worship. So when we come to this table, O Lord, help us to come with such joy because God the Son gave his life so that anyone who would believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.